Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i one day hope to unite the five lands of kumandra i'm not your disneyversity lecturer no this week i'm merely a foolhardy little toot trying not to cause too much mayhem at by the manhattan docks as we watch through 58 films and counting yes 58 films and counting, we're going to come to that in just a second. First up, our very own big toot is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are things? I'm alright, I'm a little bit jealous. At the time of recording, you have seen Raya and the Last Dragon. I have not seen Raya and the Last Dragon. I don't like this, this power imbalance that we've got going on. (laughs) I've seen a Disney film that you've not seen. This is a unique position for me to be in. That I'm going to relish every second of it. Possibly the first time that's ever happened, because we watched Frozen 2 together. Yes, you joined me for the press screening of Frozen 2. I was like, if there's anybody I need to see this film with, it's it's Sam. And uh, we sat next to each other, and I turned to you in the credits and said, hey, this version of Lost in the Woods is by Weezer. I can just tell. That that's Rivers Cuomo singing Lost in the Woods. And then we waited till the very end of the credits, obviously, to see if there was an extra scene, which I think there probably was. There was like a little Olaf thing. But I was also waiting to see if it definitely was Weezer in those credits. There we go. You enriched my experience because I probably wouldn't have picked out that it was Weezer. (laughs) And then in return, you're enriching all of our Disney experiences with two-hour podcasts. (laughs) So that seems like a fair trade, you know. But yeah, so this is the first time in the lifespan of the podcast that there is a new Disney film out in the world, Raya and the Last Dragon. Um, I've seen it twice, actually, and uh, really liked it. And in fact, I reviewed it for Empire. So you can read my full thoughts there. Uh, But we're going to explain all of this later, but we're going to do another little bonus episode soon. And if Sam has seen Raya and the Last Dragon at that point, we're going to maybe chat it up a little bit there. We're not going to skip forward completely. The whole point of doing this is that we're watching the films in chronological order. We're seeing that progression through the Disney canon. So we're not going to skip forward and do a full on Raya and the Last Dragon episode yet, but we will hopefully discuss it in the not-too-distant future. Uh, how is, Sam, how are you feeling about this episode? This is our last Package Era Films episode. This is another double whammy of all sorts of little stories. How are you feeling as we come to the end of this era? Um, I'm feeling quite relieved. I'm quite looking forward to entering a region of more consistent and predictable quality in the Disney canon because there's been a little bit of a bumpy ride, I think. That's fair to say. Basically what you're saying is there's some bangers coming up. There's some huge Disney movies on the horizon. But first, we have another set of packages. We have uh, Melody Time and the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. 
Do you like these films? What are your sort of general feelings on these ones? I like these films. I have seen Ichabod and Mr. Toad many times. I rewatch it fairly often, actually. I think. Do you? Yeah, because one of the segments in particular is very specifically Halloween themed. It's often on my Halloween playlist. Melody Time, I had not seen for about 10 years. We talked about this before, but there was a period when I was around 18 when I started collecting all the Disney movies on DVD and watching all of them. And that was the first and last time I watched Fun and Fancy Free, Make My Music and Melody Time in Full. So I had kind of got these movies conflated in my head. There was some segments that I wasn't sure whether they were in Melody Time or Make My Music. Like I knew I'd seen them all and I could remember them, but I couldn't remember which was which. Watching them back quite a noticeable difference in terms of quality. I don't think I'll be forgetting which one was which again. Yeah, as, as much as these anthology films, talking especially the ones where it's like seven, ten even shorts within a single feature, as much as to an extent you wonder if those could all be interchangeable, actually I feel like all of these films have quite a distinct feel or look to them or a sense of quality around them. Make Mind Music was probably the first film we've come across that like neither of us massively liked i'm still glad i watched it but i don't think i would have watched it if it wasn't for this podcast especially because it's not actually on disney plus but that is one where by the end of it we were like that was weak walt come on pull your socks up whereas i don't want to get too ahead of ourselves but melody time has a very similar structure but i thought it was quite a lot better than make mine music so interesting to see a varying quality even within their anthology stuff so that's enough warming up from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin this time after the jazzy interludes and horrifying ventriloquism of make mine music and fun and fancy free we're reaching the end of disney's package films era in one final double bill taking on 1948's Melody Time and 1949's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Okay, so as we just mentioned, the structure of these two movies basically mirrors that of Make My Music and Fun and Fancy Free. So Melody Time is a collection of seven music-based shorts, whereas The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad are two 35-minute stories side-by-side but packaged into one feature. So Sam, how would you describe these movies and what sort of stories are we looking at in these two films? Yeah, so Melody Time is much like Make My Music sort of a review. That's the only way you can really describe it in in a way that makes any kind of sense, in a way that gives it any sense of cohesion. It's a bunch of generally musical, although not as musical as you might expect necessarily given the title. It's a bunch of sequences jammed together. Some of them are longer, some of them are more substantial, some of them are only three minutes long. Ichabod and Mr. Toad is a little bit different and it has, in a way, even more cohesion to it than Fun and Fancy Free. Fun and Fancy Free was Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk and it had this loose framing device involving Jiminy Cricket and the ventriloquist Edgar Bergen linking them together. There isn't a framing device like that for Ichabod and Mr. Toad, but it does make it clear that the unifying premise here is that it's two classic literary characters. It's two stories from the history of literature. One is English and one is American. The Wind in the Willows and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And these two things are, in a sense, juxtaposed. I was fascinated finding out what 
the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad were because I, I had no idea it was going to be Wind in the Willows and Sleepy Hollow. Those are two stories that I do not associate in any way with Disney. So to find out that they had actually adapted both of them into one film uh, was a revelation to me. So you weren't even aware that these adaptations ever existed? You've never seen a single shred of this material whatsoever? No, no, not at all. Like I said, I went into this whole package era blind as to what was in these films. And yeah, as ever, with both Melody Time and with The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, no idea what was in them. And so then to realise the dawning realisation of, oh, Ichabod is Ichabod Crane and Mr. Toad is, of course, Toad of Toad Hall. Yeah, it was really fun getting to discover them. This has been a real voyage of discovery these past three episodes. So you didn't even know that it was that Ichabod and that Mr. Toad. You thought it was just a guy called Ichabod and a Toad who would have an adventures together. Well, yet that title makes it sound like they're going on adventures together. Like that is a sort of maybe willfully misleading title. Also, I was going to say this for later in the show, but I'm going to say it now. It should be the adventures of Mr. Toad and Ichabod because the Wind in the Willow stuff comes first and the Sleepy Hollow stuff is in the second half of the film. They got the title the wrong way round. Yeah, that is very confusing, but I do think it sounds better, and it means that they can utilise one of my favourite underappreciated Disney songs theme from Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which is just the lines, Ichabod and Mr. Toad, repeated over and over again. <laughs> what a banger. Who needs more? How many more words do you need, Sam? <laughs> the four most beautiful words in the English language, Ichabod <laughs> and Mr. Toad. Perfect. So with this being the end of the package era, was there a sense around these films that Disney might soon be able to return to putting out singular features again? Like, at the time, did they know they were coming to the end of their package era with these two movies? Yeah, so as we've mentioned several times before, the production cycles of these movies have always overlapped, often by several years. So... Cinderella, which came out in 1950, the subsequent year, will have been well underway by the time this was released. And yeah, there will have been some overlap in terms of the production there. Because I think you can feel it in terms of maybe the early package stuff is especially kind of that fast and cheap model. That was the whole point of them doing this package era, that they could still be putting stuff out and recoup some costs and be able to put that into future features. But I think with these two, and you saw that a bit maybe with the films we covered in the last episode as well, you could feel the production values starting to bump up again for me, just in watching it. The animation style, the effects shots, all of these sort of things, you could feel them kind of starting to stretch those muscles a bit again. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, definitely. It feels like they're building towards something, right? It feels like they're starting to ramp back up to it. And as well as that, there are things that these two movies in particular... Melody Time and Ichabod and Mr. Toad have in common with the next batch of films. I think the way that they utilise Mary Blair's work for the backgrounds, the legendary Disney concept artist, the way that her illustrations are used is evolving from the way that it was used in Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros and it's becoming closer to the relationship that the animators would have with Blair's work in films like Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan. I think the music has a lot in common as well. During this era you start to see that classic like Disney choral sound that I really associate with movies like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. You see that coming in. So yeah, it does feel like the building is something both in terms of the length of the stories that they can tell and the quality and in terms of 
some of the techniques and ideas that are being utilised here as well. So in terms of melody time, when we spoke about Make Mind Music, there were specific segments there that were kind of holdovers from Fantasia. Was that the case with any of the films in Melody Time? Was Disney just looking for another outlet to kind of cram these shorter features into a releasable film? Generally, no. I mean, there's one which sticks out like a sore thumb, I think, within Melody Time, and that's Blame It on the Samba, which is, as I alluded to a few episodes ago, that's a holdover from the two Latin American features. In particular, that feels like it would have slotted very well into The Three Caballeros. It also could possibly have been something that were developing for the planned third Latin American film that didn't come to fruition. But the rest of them were made knowing that they were going to be included in a compilation, which is one of the things that separates this from Make My Music, where some of those were going to be released of shorts, some of them were going to be included in something like Fantasia. Here, there are some ideas, some concepts that predate this film, predate the production of this film, but when they were making this, for the most part, they knew what it was going to be, and I think that shows. And I wanted to ask basically the same thing about the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, because when we spoke about Fun and Fancy Free, it felt like the the two stories that that was generally tackling were things that were maybe considered for feature-length films, but they just didn't have the means or production power to do fully-fledged features of those at the time, or they maybe just didn't feel suited to that presentation. Was that the same again with their Wind of the Willows and Sleepy Hollow adaptations? Was there ever a world in which those were going to be fully-fledged Disney features, or was it always the case that those two were going to be part of a package? So Toad was intended to be a feature film, or it would probably have been called The Wind in the Willows if it had been expanded to feature length. That had been in production for 10 years, or it had been in development for 10 years. It's one of the films from this era, including Cinderella, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, which had legs, which predate even Bambi. It goes back even further than that. Wow, that's really far back. Yeah, I mean, there's a pseudo-documentary called The Reluctant Dragon, which was released just before Dumbo came out, and that's on Disney Plus if you want to check it out. And in the background of that, you can see production art and models and things for Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Mr. Toad. Mickey and the Beanstalk was also being bandied about as a possible feature. So when they were producing Bambi, there was a period where the intention was to follow that up with either or both of Mickey and the Beanstalk and Mr. Toad, which were going to be lower budget films anyway. But Walt wasn't quite happy with the quality of the films to that point. And, you know, it looked like the money was about to run out, basically, as it it eventually did. So he shelled both of those movies and eventually Mickey and the Beanstalk was resurrected for Fun and Fancy Free, as was Mr. Toad. Originally, they were going to be one movie. That was going to be the movie. It was going to be Mickey and the Beanstalk and Mr. Toad before they split them up and paired Toad with... Ichabod Crane. And the Ichabod section, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow section, that was made for this purpose. That was purpose-built to be combined with Mr. Toad. Under the title, Two Fabulous Characters. That was the working title (laughs) for this movie. I think that was the working title even when it was going to be Toad and Mickey. Two Fabulous Characters, which I think would be a good name for this podcast if we had to change it from Disneyversity. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it would. I mean, it's a very, very vague title. That is like, I rushed my homework at the last minute and I need to come up with something. Two... Fabulous characters. <laughs> it could be any characters. Which characters? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Mickey Mouse and Mr. Towards. Just two fabulous characters, man. Okay, well, now that we're primed, shall we dive into our discussion of uh, of Melody Time and the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad? Let's do it. Let's go, baby. 
I have to say, Sam, I'm a little bit annoyed because I was ready to be a complete SWAT this week. As we start discussing Melody Time, I was going to be the like model student. I was going to show you how much I've learned already through this podcast, through the discussions that we've had, and say, do you know what, Sam? As I was watching this film, it really struck me that Mary Blair is all over this movie. But you've already teed up that this film is all about the Mary Blair stuff, so you've stolen my thunder there. But I hope I can still get the brownie points. I hope I can still get a gold stamp or a little sticker or something that says good job. Because that was one of my main thoughts through this film. Like so many of the shorts here, you pointed out her work, especially in The Three Caballeros, how distinctive it is, her style that wasn't necessarily easily adapted by the animators, But so many of the segments here, you could feel that Mary Blair style coming through, and it is stunning. Yeah, I think, first of all, obviously, um, well done. Yay, thank you. (laughs) I'll I'll take you at your word that you didn't just scribble that down when I mentioned it earlier. it's right at the top of my notes. I'm showing you on Squadcast right now. I don't know if you can see it. Yep, there it is. Paint, easel, and palette, and brush. Mary Blair. And you mentioned paint, easel, palette, and brush because that's the first image that we see in this film. Yeah, like every little segment of this film, every new short is introduced by a paintbrush painting it onto the screen. And it, and the whole story begins with a paint easel and it's they've painted like a stage and it's they paint like a drama mask who introduces the movie. Um, but before that, of course, we have the classic Disney trope that pops up all over both of these films which is we are going into a book. There is a book that says Walt Disney Presents, and then we go, I think, through the book, and then there's a stage, and then there's a mask. There's a lot of framing stuff going on here. It's confused, isn't it? Because yeah, Make My Music is very much, oh, it's a cinema, and then each segment is teed up by a kind of marquee or a poster, which vaguely locates you in the area of the cinema. Here we have a book, and then inside the book there is an easel, and then on the easel there is a stage, and then on the stage there is a mask. The mask introduces us to each segment, and then the paintbrush paints it. (laughs) It is a little bit semiotically confused, isn't it? There are a lot of layers going on there. The mask says it's going to take us to the land where music is king. And at the same time, like you said, the shorts here are kind of less musically based than some of the other package films that we've seen in this era. Uh, I guess they are all still set to music, and they announce kind of who's singing them or who the performers are at the start of each short. And so the first one of those shorts is called Once Upon a Winter Time. It's sung by Francis Langford. And again, at the top of my notes for this segment, Sam, it says more Mary Blair style. This is a wintry landscape. And you can see the way that she draws trees, just the colour palettes that she uses. Her style, now that you pointed it out, it's so distinctive and I absolutely love it. Yeah, and kind of like I alluded to earlier, we're kind of at a transitional phase here in terms of her relationship with the animators and how they utilise her work. In The Three Caballeros in particular, you very much get the sense that she is just doing whatever she wants. She is going wild with the inspiration she's drawn from these various different Latin American cultures and particularly we're pointing out the train sequence in The Three Caballeros. That's the purest image of Mary Blair's art that you will see in these films. Bright crayon on black background, very abstracted. In the later films, like Cinderella, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, the animators are more utilising her work as inspiration without directly trying to adapt it. She's mainly been prized for her eye as a colourist, as someone who can select the exact right colours to convey the exact right tone for that scene. Here, the animators are utilising Blair's work almost stroke for stroke 
for the backgrounds, but you also see that it seems like she's adjusting her style to suit the specific purposes of each individual shot. So for example, in the Once Upon a Wintertime sequence, well, what did it remind you of? Uh, I don't really know. It did remind me a bit generally of Bambi because it's um, the story of this short is that it's just a couple, a human couple who are having a lovely date on a winter's day and they go ice skating. So you have these two characters skating around on the ice in a very lovely snowy landscape and that couldn't help but remind me of Bambi. But the style visually is very different. So I don't know, should it have rung any bells from things that we've seen so far? Oh no, not not necessarily things that we've seen so far. I mean, what I was going to say was that this sort of flattened version of this woodland wintertime landscape reminded me of a greetings card. Yes. It's like you are going into a Christmas card, right? And I think it's something she's consciously trying to evoke and that the animators are consciously trying to evoke. It's just so cosy and so charming. Like, that's one of the things that I wrote down while I was watching this. It's so charming and wholesome. I really loved this little short. And I think that comes through both in the characters, but also in the design of the whole thing and the backgrounds that are that are Mary Blair's. You really feel that come through. And that's exactly it. Like you said, a Christmas card. Yeah, it's this very specific vibe, the specific aesthetic that they're trying to tap in to I think to get even more specific with it it's heavily inspired by a group of 19th century printmakers sort of a 19th century printmaking company called Courier and Ives who certainly at this time in America I don't know if this would still be the case today that seems to have been almost a byword for a specific aesthetic like this nostalgic sort of turn of the century almost midwestern regionalist style this tone this setting these kinds of landscapes and in fact at one point this movie was going to be called Courier and Ives. That was a working title for this film. And the idea was that the framing device was going to be the Courier and Ives workshop and you would see lots of different prints and paintings in this Midwestern nostalgic regionless style hung up in live action. And then the camera would take you into each painting and that would be the setting for that segment. And then you would come out and it would take you into a different one. And I think knowing that you can probably pick out which of the shorts from this were going to be part of that conception of the film, right? It's an aesthetic that Melody Time goes back to more than once. Definitely. And we could have had a different framing device on top of the 12 that they already started the film with. (laughs) They had ideas for more? Come on, rein it in, guys. In terms of the narrative of this one, like I said, it's just a cute story of this couple who go ice skating... The guy messes up. He, like, skates in at high speed and covers his date in freezing snow, and she's fuming at him. And then it all there's, a, like, a little element of peril from there where she skates off in a huff past a sign that says very clearly, danger, thin ice. And all the ice starts cracking, and it's about kind of bringing her back to safety. It was just such a lovely, charming little short. You said that the Sleepy Hollow stuff in Ichabod and Mr. Toad is something you go back to every Halloween. This short, this Once Upon a Winter Time, should be a little Christmas classic. It's just neat, isn't it? It's warm, it's fuzzy. Like you said, there's a little bit of peril. Well, actually, to be fair, she nearly falls off a waterfall and dies. (laughs) Which was very, very Bongo the Bear, by the way. Yeah, totally straight up nicked that from Bongo and from many other cartoons and films where people nearly fall off a waterfall and die. But you never feel too frightened for them. It's not going to shake you up too much, is it? It's just a cosy Christmas adventure. Yeah, absolutely love this one. Lovely way into the film. And the next one is a belter too. This is Freddie Martin and his orchestra doing Flight of the Bumblebee in a sort of jazzy boogie woogie style. And the short is called Bumble Boogie. So the brush is back and it draws actually not a bumblebee, but some kind of like purple fly 
and the whole thing becomes this crazy abstract jazz nightmare where, where this little purple fly is like blasted by jazzy outbursts of music in the form of flowers and it's kind of akin with some of the jazzy stuff in Make Mine Music as well. I mean Flight of the Bumblebee was mulled for Fantasia it was it was considered for inclusion in that but I don't know how much DNA this shares with anything that was ever considered for that film because this is so specifically modern this is so specifically about the fusion of jazz and classical music and maybe even that perceived conflict between jazz and classical music this is something actually disney had dealt with before in a short called music land which is um sort of a romeo and juliet story between i think it's a violin and a saxophone contrasting those two musical worlds bumble boogie does a similar thing through the apparent proclivities of freddie martin who like benny goodman who performed the jazz music for Make My Music, Freddie Martin is a white jazz band leader. That's, you know, something that we've got to contend with, that like a lot of animation from around this period, Disney here are trying to utilise the aesthetic qualities of jazz without engaging with the black performers at the heart of that genre. But nevertheless, this is centred around the figure of Freddie Martin, who was described as an ardent admirer of the classics. So this well-known jazz band leader is introduced by the narrator, and we are told that he is somebody who is interested in jamming these two genres together, and then we see it happen, and we see the bumblebee representing the original classical piece coming into conflict with all of these various different instruments and musical notes, which I think represent jazz music intruding into this genre, but in a fun way, in a productive way, in an entertaining way. It uses some of the same tricks as After You've Gone, in particular, from Make My Music, where you've got, for example, figures hopping over piano keys, almost like it's Crash Bandicoot or something, <laughs> having to like jump over the different keys while they're getting attacked by musical notes, etc., but um, it's better, I think. It's more interesting. It's building on those ideas. Some of the imagery here is amazing because the piano keys come to life and transforms into other things that attack the little fly. So, yeah, you have piano flowers. At one point, it becomes a piano caterpillar and then it becomes a vicious like piano snake that's attacking the bumblebee and keys are falling off while he's being attacked. And it was like Pink Elephants becomes a jazz piano acid trip thing. It was great. Yeah, so much more imaginative than the jazz shorts in Make My music which were some of our favorite shorts from make my music but i don't know this just it has more ideas i think the animation is better it just looks better on a very basic level and it has a hook it has a character it has this b I mean, there were sort of characters in the Make My Music jazz shorts as well, but this has someone that you're following. It means that we can include character animation and character beats. You know, this guy has expressions. He has some kind of inner life. There's almost a story, you know, not a very complex one. But yeah, it's just easier to sit through than those jazz shorts. It's got something to hook the audience in. So if those first two shorts are really different from each other, the third one is very different again, and kind of plays into some of the stuff that we saw in Make My Music, which was Walt's predisposition to telling legendary American stories. And that means we get the tale of Johnny Appleseed, who I was like vaguely aware of as a thing. He's a guy and he's got apple seeds and he sowed them around America or something. 
I don't know how much this hues to the actual Johnny Appleseed legend. We'll get to that later in the show and discarded. But this is, yeah, a very consciously Disney putting forth another piece of American folklore, telling the story of John Chapman, who was described as a real-life pioneer who then birthed the legend of Johnny Appleseed and in the early 1800s was part of the Westwood expansion and just planted a bunch of apple trees. That was kind of his thing. So this idea of adapting American legends was another concept that was considered to build this whole movie around. So in fact, in some of the press releases for the finished movie at the time, it was pitched as being spun around a core of American legend. This is a quote. Spun around a core of American legend. The mighty men of our native mythology. So, couple of things. First of all, I don't think that one Bumblebee and a character we're about to meet, a baby boat called Lil Toot, can be considered (laughs) the mighty men of American mythology. Hey, don't you come for Lil Toot. (laughs) Or like that one guy who covered his girlfriend in snow, yeah? (laughs) I think that is reaching a bit to say that that's the core of this film, even though some of the segments are very much adaptations of these legendary stories. We'll get to another one later on. Secondly, our native mythology. Yeah, I don't think you can use the phrase native mythology and uh, refer to white people and westward expansion and basically colonialization. This is like a colonial narrative. Absolutely. And Johnny Appleseed and the upcoming Pecos Bill, both of these shorts factor Native American characters within them to a degree. It's not a coincidence that this movie had a may contain outdated cultural depictions tag at the start. When a studio like Disney is trying to position itself as a conduit for America's mythology, let alone America's quote-unquote native mythology, you have to ask the question, whose America is this? Whose America is being presented to us? This was a question that arose when we talk about Dumbo, because that was the first Disney feature set in America. It is also the first Disney feature in which contemporary American race relations play any kind of role. So what kind of America is Disney showing us in a movie like Dumbo? What kind of America is Disney showing us in a movie like this? The answer is white America. (laughs) Yeah, white Christian America as well, because this is the most explicitly religious film. I think that Disney had made to this point. I'm trying to run my mind over various shorts that included religious themes, and I don't think anything really comes close to this. Well, obviously this one ends in heaven, but we also went to marine heaven at the end of Make My Music when uh, <laughs> Willy the Whale was shot. So I don't think it's the first bit of uh, of religion. Come on, Sam, keep the whales included in this. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Whales are people too. Whale heaven is just as valid. But this This is a story in which God and angels and Christianity factor very heavily. We're introduced to Johnny Appleseed as this kind of scrawny guy who sees all of these wagons heading out west and he's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to like go out west? But I can't do that because I'm like a little scrawny guy. I can't survive out in the west. But an angel comes down and persuades him to join along and to, to go out west and sort of sets him on, literally on the road to becoming Johnny Appleseed. Like, it's it's divine intervention. Yeah, and we've got an actual angel. We've got a song called The Lord Is Good To Me, in which Johnny Appleseed sings about how good the Lord is. 
Then we have this suggestion that the impetus for his apple seed sowing quest is this religious experience where the angel basically tells him what his destiny is, tells him what his calling is. And then we'll have the fact that in spreading these apple seeds and growing a bunch of apple trees along the trails that these American pioneers are frequenting in their caravans and convoys, he is bringing the joy of God's gifts to the people. And we have this sequence where lots of various pioneers are having a festival to celebrate all of the many products that can be created from apples. Sam, you can stew them, fry them, boil them, bake them. To be fair, apples are very versatile and delicious. Oh yeah, absolutely. We are not throwing shade at apples in this <laughs> whatsoever. What's your favourite kind of apple? Pink lady apples are the number ones, but I'm normally too stingy to buy them because they're really expensive. Otherwise, I don't... Oh, I'm just bad at eating fruit. I don't really... just. I wouldn't just go and oh. eat an apple, um, but I would eat an apple pie. I like a shiny green Granny Smith. Yeah, I feel like, like full-on green apples are quite controversial these days. They're not as popular as they, they used to be. Yeah, I feel like I'm really... What the hell is this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you mentioned the festival. It's yet another hoedown. How... Like, this era of Disney films is obsessed with hoedowns and, like, yeehaw dancing. <laughs> Everyone we've watched has some kind of yeehaw moment in it. <laughs> yeah, Bongo had a hoedown. Mm. The uh, Martins and the Coys had a hoedown. In... Three Caballeros had, like, a sort of festival. There was, like, I remember, like, Twang in the Bass and everyone's dancing around. Yeah, I mean, even Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs has a little bit of a hoedown. God, Walt just Maybe closer to a jamboree. Yeah. <laughs> or a hootenanny. <laughs> or a hootenanny. <laughs> Who knows what the line is there. Anyway, I'm sorry, I contributed to that, but I feel like we've got off track somehow. Anyway, during this down, we see very, very briefly Native American characters. The implication being that, oh, I guess the implication is that Johnny is uniting the white settlers and the Native Americans through the magic of apples. I think there is also a subtext of evangelism here that he is bringing the supposed gifts of the Christian God to these Native Americans as well. In real life, Johnny Appleseed is said to have been a friend to Native Americans. The actual guy was well-loved by all of the Native Americans that he encountered, apparently. I don't know who's right in this history, who knows how factually accurate that is. But the fact is that they factor into this story very, very little, very, very briefly. And when you do see them as well, like the, the stereotypical presentation here, like they are literally drawn with red skin. It's the briefest flash of, of Native American characters in this story. And yet when you do see them, it's still like, oh god okay and i mean like we're saying it is a colonialist tale through and through it's sort of inherent in what this is like there's that phrase that comes up the westward expansion is pioneers to push back the forest it's like a cozy romanticized tale of colonialism sweeping across america which is a bit depressing and this is something that is present in picos bill and it's almost inherent in the kinds of story that Disney is telling all across his filmography around this period in time. So we'll point it out that there's a lot of rural American settings in Make My Music. Also, in between these two package films, Song of the South was released, a film set on a, albeit post-slavery plantation, still a plantation, 
in a period where the wounds of slavery should be very, very apparent, and yet you see a quasi-idealised relationship between the white plantation owners and the black workers in that film. Disney's next film, his next live-action film, was called So Dear to My Heart, and that's set in a very similar setting, and it's one in which non-white people are almost entirely absent, whether that's Native Americans or black people. Disney's stories are becoming more quintessentially American. This is a narrative through-line that will continue through a lot of his early live-action films and through the construction of Disneyland in the 1950s. And as Disney stories become more quintessentially American, it becomes more and more apparent that we are looking at a very particular white, middle-class, conservative America that's being presented. When you exist entirely in the fantastical, pseudo-European worlds of Pinocchio and Snow White, and many of the segments in Fantasia, the social divisions of the time and the particularly conservative ideologies held by Walt Disney are less obvious. We're not being asked to engage with those kinds of ideas in those films. Now we are, and to our modern eyes, but also to the eyes of um, commentators from the time, there are plenty of contemporaneous black critics writing on the problems with Song of the South, and I don't like, I mentioned this with Dumbo, I don't like the narrative that you often hear these days that, oh, well, it was fine for the time, okay? So yes to our contemporary eyes, but all sorts of people writing contemporaneously. It's becoming more apparent we are having to grapple more and more with the kind of person that Disney is and the kind of America that he represents. Because I do just want to enjoy these films, and yet it's there, it's ever-present. In terms of what we do see in this short, one thing that I thought was really notable is that Johnny Appleseed is a very classic-looking Disney character in a way that we haven't encountered maybe ever in the films we've seen so far. I can't quite put my finger on why. I think it's maybe because we actually haven't had a human Disney lead in such a long time. He, Yeah, he, he looks like a Disney character, like a human Disney character in a way that I feel like we haven't quite encountered yet in the films that we've watched. Yeah, we've had characters like the Martins and the Coys and like Casey at the Bat, who are very caricatured human figures. Sam, they're all freaks. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're not on board with any of those guys. We didn't enjoy their adventures. We don't sanction their buffoonery. But a bit like the dwarfs in Snow White, they are more comic figures and therefore they are more caricatured. Johnny Appleseed himself looks more human because he is a more human character, because he is a character that we are meant to take seriously. He's a character whose emotional journey, whose arc we are meant to take seriously. Right to the point that he steps out of his mortal husk at the end of the tale. He falls asleep at the bottom of a tree and his soul just walks out of his body. And there you go, kids. A bit of mortality in your colonialist American folktale. But it's all fine because as much as he's hesitant to leave Earth behind... He at least gets to go and plant apple seeds in heaven forever and ever. Amen. So the film then switches gears again to bring us to probably my favourite segment, or at least one of my favourite characters of Melody Time, which is a tiny tugboat by the name of Little Toot. And this is sung by the Andrews sisters, who, have they been involved in a Disney thing before? I recognise that name. They were in the hats one. <laughs> oh, they did the hats. In Make My Music, they did the hats who were in love. And this time, they were singing the story of a little tugboat 
who loves just dooting about in the water, just bobbing around, accidentally causing mischief until he causes a bit too much mischief and accidentally makes a massive ship crash into Manhattan. And then he's arrested by scary army boats and is dragged out to sea 12 miles away from the shore. He's basically banished from the docks and then has a chance to redeem himself. That is the story of Little Toots. He was cute and he reminded me a lot of Pedro the Plain. And he's mm-hmm. just a little tiny tugboat trying to do his thing. And he kept going, dot, dot. so that was good. He wants to be a big toot, just like his dad's. That's what he says. That's his song. Don't we all? <laughs> he wants to be a big toot, so he what takes on more responsibility than he's probably capable of handling, tries to tug a big old boat, decimates a large portion of Manhattan, right? Several buildings were destroyed. There were probably human casualties, Sam. There is no way there wasn't. I mean, there has to be. It's a good job the boat authorities got him first because the human authorities would have, like, decommissioned Little Toot. He wouldn't even have been dragged out to sea. He would have been pulled apart piece by piece for what he did. I feel like we have now... I didn't think we were going to see the body count of the Martins and the Coys surpassed so quickly (laughs) in Disney, but I feel like Little Toot has done that. And yet you claim to like him. I would suggest he's a monster. He is a bit of a monster. He has a really cute design and yet isn't the cutest character, if that makes sense. He, like, looks really cute and I I find him very endearing. But at the same time, he, he does some pretty bad things and causes some chaos. So he he's not quite on the level of Pedro the Plain. He disgraces his father's name, as the Andrews sisters sing. His dad has to tug the shite raft now. That's his punishment, yeah? Little Toot's being exercised, and Big Toot has to pull a big boat full of, like, feces? Full of, like, trash and poo? Wow. I mean, what a punishment. Does that really... F- well, I guess that kind of does fit the crime, to be fair. Yeah, of course it fits the crime. But not for his dad. His dad didn't... He raised him. Well... He's, he's a kid. He's not... I don't think Little Toot will be legally liable for that kind of carnage. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. But I, f- I feel like the book stops with the parents in these kind of scenarios. So do you think that Lil Toot's eventual heroic actions make up for the many lives that he cost? Well, I mean, there's no way he could undo what he did, but he does when he gets pulled 12 miles away from the city. In fact, he's dragged past some floating life boys and they're (laughs) they're chanting, bad boy, bad boy, shame. It was really weird. It was really creepy. Very creepy. Um, But he is out at sea, basically, and he gets walloped by a massive storm and picks up like a Morse code SOS from a ship that's been wrecked or it's caught up in some rocks and little toot comes to the rescue he picks up the stranded ship and drags it back to shore and there we go redemption he made one big boat crash but he saved another and as the andrew sisters sing you're now a great big toot little toot yeah baby it's not quite with great power comes great responsibility is it but (laughs) but what is I thought the storm, the effects of the storm were really impressive. Like, it did feel huge, that big storm that he's caught in when he goes out to sea. Do you know what? There is one more trial that he goes through as well, because when he is pulling the bigger boat to rescue, there's a lightning strike, and his butt gets zapped by the lightning (laughs) as he's uh, pulling that to shore. I think that almost, like, powers him ahead. He gets zapped, and he suddenly has the strength to pull the big boat to shore, so I don't don't know what the physical laws of the Little Toot universe are, but... Yeah, I mean, he was cute. I like the song. I am on record as being a big fan of the Andrews sisters, and their whole general vibe... 
I just kind of hope that that lightning strike hurts just a little bit and that Lil Toot can physically reckon with just a small fraction of the suffering that he's cost the thousands. He definitely felt the shame. He was a bad boy. But the next segment is the shortest one in the film. It's a poem simply called Trees. Uh, And this is a short where a, a poem becomes a song and that song becomes an animated artistic expression about, well, trees. What else is there to say, Sam? It's a very well known poem, or I think at this point in time, at least it certainly was, in America. I've never heard of it before. It's by a guy called Joyce Kilmer, and it's like regularly taught in American schools. It's just a poem that kind of everyone knew at that point in time at least, like it was ubiquitous. The poem is from 1919, and yet it has a very romantic, lyrical style which puts it at odds with the poetry of the period, which was more modernist and experimental at that time. And therefore it has a lot in common with Disney, who in a way, as a figure and as a studio, embodied this conflict and this coexistence of very conservative and romantic aesthetic interests along with modernist experimental technological processes. So it's a very apt choice to be adapted by the Disney studio, I think. And I like the hell out of this. For the most part, I thought the imagery in this sequence was great, really impressive, really effective. There were some really impressive effect shots in here. Like, uh, there's a downpour at one point, and in the raindrops, there are like sparkle effects happening. And um, there is an amazing shot where it sort of zooms back out of effectively like a dewdrop. It's just layers and layers of this stuff. It's it is beautiful. I have to say, it sounds like you engaged with this one a lot more than I do because pretty much my only notes for this one was that the very purple ending shot of trees looked to me like a lost Prince album cover, and that's pretty much my only note for this one. Well, that final shot is very significant to the the overall meaning of the film, right? I'm going to say yes and pretend that I paid any attention to what the narrative of this poem was. Well, it doesn't obviously have a narrative, so to speak. It would fall into the category of torn poem, along with something like the Blue Bayou sequence or the Without You sequence from Make My Music. But what this poem and, I think, this piece of animation are really about is, much like Johnny Appleseed, this pastoral relationship between man and nature and the way that that reflects the relationship between man and God. That's what Johnny Appleseed's about. It's about nature as a gift from God. And by being closer to nature, as the character of Johnny Appleseed is, we can be closer to God. Some lines from this poem include, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And then that is followed up with, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. So the poet, Joyce Kilmer, is acknowledging his limitations as a human. He can only evoke the majesty of God's creation. I feel like Disney's almost taken that as a challenge. Like, oh, only God can make a really beautiful tree? Well, okay, I'll show you what we can do with animation. These trees are going to absolutely slap. Could God make little toots? Hell no, he's an affront to the laws of nature. Well, I'm glad you picked up on the themes of that poem a lot more than me. I, I should probably go back and rewatch the trees sequence at some point. So we go from a religious expression in poetry and music and artistic expression, and I think I keep saying the word expression, we go from that to the absolute boys being back in town in Blame It on the Samba. This is the return of Jose Carioca. Again, you can't keep that guy down. 
and Donald Duck, sadly without their third Caballero. Um, it felt like this was aiming to be a bit of a three Caballeros reunion, but there is no Pancho Pistoli here. He he just, I don't know, he was busy that weekend. But Jose and Donald are back, and also back is the Araquan, the little speedy red bird who's a bit of a precursor to Woody Woodpecker. Uh, that guy owns a cafe now. He's making his way in the world. He's got his own business. And he is there to pick up Jose and Donald when they are literally down and blue. They are sad guys and they need a bit of samba back in their lives. And the Araquan does that for them. Yeah, the the narrator at the start of this says we're going to meet three boisterous birds of a feather and I'm rubbing my hands, Whoa. here they come. It's those caballeros and then it's Donald, Jose, the Araquan. <laughs> That's kind of what makes me think that I've read that this was meant to be part of the planned third Latin American film. The fact that Pancho Pistolas isn't in it makes me think that this is meant to be actually an offcut from the first half of the Three Caballeros when they're still in Brazil and Pancho hasn't materialised yet. Maybe, I don't know, but eh, it was kind of a shame he wasn't there. I would like to have seen all three. Not really complaining, though, because this is just great, isn't it? It's fun. I'm so elated every single time we meet our boys, and I think coming off the back of the more melancholy trees this is a shot in the arm yeah i i I just love the fact that whenever these lads get together they just like vibe out on music together they drink and they dance and they it has to be said get really horny (laughs) uh because horny donald is back he's at it again he's at it again he's doing his thing it's very reminiscent of the bahia segment for me of the three caballeros because you've got a, a live action woman playing the organ against a swirly technical backgrounds is she the same woman from the Bahia segment she looked really familiar to me for some reason no this is a organist called Ethel Smith and, and she is not actually Latin American she's just a organist from the US who has an interest in samba music but my god she plays it very well I actually thought it was very nice to have a live action woman on the screen and let's just focus on the fact that she is insanely skilled with twiddling those keys like she plays the ever-loving hell out of that organ and yeah you do have Donald kind of giving us some goo-goo eyes but it's not as exaggerated and as central as it is in the three caballeros she's not just a sex object she is skilled at the same time Donald Duck is underneath the organ by her legs as soon as he was down there I was like oh my god I feel nervous like get him away from the lady's legs he's such a creep he's a real perv when he wants to be um and and at the end of the segment I love that it becomes literally an explosive thing the Araquan sets the organ on fire he lights some dynamite he blows it up and she's still playing it while it's kind of exploding and the whole thing's been taking place in a cocktail glass at the Araquan's bar slash cafe, whatever that is. Whenever Disney does this samba surf, it's so evocative and it's so fun and you can't help but get swept up in it. Yeah, it's just great to be back in that world and have that sense that literally anything can happen. Just one last thing on this one before we move on as well. Uh, there's an incredible drum solo and while that's happening, it takes place against a background that is, again, a major Mary Blair vibe. This is another segment in which she really comes across her, her art style. Yeah, it's another jungle scene which is actually quite highly reminiscent of the train sequence from the Three Caballeros, which I know I've mentioned a million times, but it's just such a cool style of illustration. We've seen her at work in Once Upon a Winter Time, and we've seen her backgrounds as well incorporated into Johnny Appleseed quite noticeably. 
this feels like, it, as in Caballero, she's being let off the leash a little bit. She's not being forced to conform to the broader objective of the short, and it's just do what you want. And I think the animators are taking that same approach as well. Amazing stuff. But that brings us to the final segment of Melody Time, and this is another mythical American tale about a cowboy or a feral... He's basically feral. It's a guy called Pecos Bill, and uh, he is a guy who was raised by coyotes. But before we get to his tale, there is, you guessed it, another framing narrative. They can't get enough of them. This is a campfire story being told in the Old West. You have loads of live-action people, including, I'm pretty sure, little Luana Patton from Fun and Fancy Free. Do I get bonus points for recognising her, Sam? Yep, absolutely. Well done. She's back. She's back, and she is no longer surrounded by creepy ventriloquist dummies, so she was probably pretty happy about that. But she is at a campfire in the Old West with all canyons and deserts and cacti and all the usual Wild West stuff, being told the tale of Pecos Bill and Slewfoot Sue, the bloody woman who broke his heart. Women, eh, Sam? What are you going to do with them? Yeah, and you actually get a very similar reaction from the little boy in this sequence as well. So the story's being told by Roy Rogers, uh, the famous singing cowboy actor, accompanied by his horse, Trigger, billed as the smartest horse in movies. That's a huge claim. Yeah, I was excited for the smartest horse in movies. He doesn't really do very much. I'm sure if you go back into Trigger's back catalogue, there's some exceptional acting, but uh, he kind of whinnies a bit, I guess. I mean, whinnying on cue. I can't whinny on cue. Can you? (laughs) (laughs) Sam, the smartest horse in podcasting. (laughs) I tried it. I have renewed respect for Trigger. So, right, you've got Roy Rogers, you've got Trigger, you've got Luana Patton, but the fourth friend that we'll meet is a guy called Bobby Driscoll. Did you recognise him? (laughs) Did you recognise his voice? Is he the little boy who goes, Oh, shucks, a woman in the story. That's exactly right, yeah. As soon as Rogers gets to the character of Slewfoot Sue, Bobby Driscoll turns his nose right up. He's not having that. Reminded me of the little boy in uh, The Princess Bride, where it's like, oh, is this a kissing story? So Bobby Driscoll uh, is another, like Luana Patton, a child actor who Disney was trying to mould into a star who he could then put in a whole bunch of stuff. So he was with Luana Patton in Song of the South. He was like the lead of Song of the South. He's also the lead of So Dear to My Heart, the next live action film, which also had Luana Patton. And he is Peter Pan. Wow, the voice of Peter Pan. Yeah, the voice of Peter Pan. Also kind of a sexist little shit in that movie (laughs) too. (laughs) Consistency. So when this story's being told, as much as it is, again, playing in this like very colonialist, Disney, white America, yoldy take on the Wild West, they do a lovely job of evoking the Wild West. Like, as you go into the story, it takes a few minutes just to acclimatise you in nature. There's this montage where there are coyotes howling against the moon, there are tortoises walking through the desert, little prairie dogs running into holes in the grounds. Um, but this is, the, the coyotes sort of kick off the story because this is like a mythological like take on why coyotes howl at the moon. And that is because, well, Bill got his heart broken and Bill howled at the moon and then the coyotes joined in howling at the moon. Uh, and, and we get to find out the backstory of all of that. Yeah, so Picos Bill, raised by coyotes, very, well, it's very a lot of things, but I was thinking Jungle Book yes. when I was watching this, Mowgli raised by wolves. Um, but unlike Mowgli, 
being raised by coyotes effectively imbues Bill with superhuman powers, and he becomes just this absolute tank, bashing his way through the Wild West, creating landmarks, and having fistfights with hurricanes and things. Yeah, he, he brought the rain from California, he knocked men's gold teeth out, and that's why there's gold in the hills. He he was really thirsty, so he dug the Rio Grande. And this is where the basically racist portrayal of Native Americans comes in again, because this is, in quotations, a tribe of painted Indians doing a war dance. And you see these Native American figures painted in crazy colours all slapping each other. It's very dehumanising. In fact, Picos Bill then goes and like shoots at them and scares them away and the paint splatters on the canyons. And that's why you get, I think, are they called the Painted Canyons? Painted Desert, yeah. It basically establishes Pecos Bill as a symbol of Texas. Within that, you see the animators once again being able to flex their muscles and create these more cartoony scenarios. So we get him like lassoing this hurricane, jumping on top of it and like slapping it around a bit like he's riding a bull. And then he like lights his cigar on a bolt of lightning. I really like that visual. I thought that was cool as eyes. It's a cool move. Yeah. But then that also extends to obviously the depiction of the Native Americans who are much more caricatured and grotesque than they are in Johnny Appleseed. So this is sort of the second extended engagement with a figure from American mythology, but they are quite a stark contrast to one another. This is much more exaggerated, much more heightened, whereas Johnny Galaxy was a bit more meditative and melancholy. Yeah, this is one where the the love story begins because uh, Slewfoot Sue, who Pecos Bill falls in love with, she's a hot woman riding a massive fish. That's, that's a thing. Yeah, that's real tall tale stuff, isn't it? I love that. And Of course, we have to mention Picos Bill's own personal steed, Widowmaker. Oh, God, that name tells a real reputation. There is a character in a Disney movie called Widowmaker. This horse has a, again, like Lil Toot, has a body count. This horse murders husbands (laughs) and widows women. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how he's doing it. Does he? You don't see him making any widows. You see him make a widower, though, because he is not a fan of Slewfoot Sue. One bit. Oh, no, he's absolutely fuming when uh, Bill and Sue are going to get married. And, and Sue wants to ride the horse to the wedding, which just seems like a terrible move. And, um, yeah, he, he absolutely flips out when she's riding him along to the wedding. To her credit, she manages to hold on like a sort of bucking bronco, uh, and it's no big deal but she's had to put on this like bustle thing for the wedding like she's basically got a big bouncy butt <laughs> like that is that is official this is law and it's a shot where she like slaps her own like twanging butt <laughs> and it goes boing and as she's being bucked around on the back of the horse she starts like basically trampolining into the air it becomes this insane thing where she's like bouncing up and down into the sky they can't get married because she- <laughs> She's picked up she's so airborne. she's airborne. She's picked up so much momentum that she can't be captured. She can't be earthbound anymore. To the extent that she bounces to the moon, Sam. She bounces all the way to the moon on her bouncy butt. I love it so much. I there is a Disney movie which ends with the love interest bouncing on her ass repeatedly till she flies to the moon. <laughs> 
And you get, like, aerial shots of her flying towards the camera. I feel like at one point she lands on the ground so hard she makes, like, a mushroom cloud. Is that right? Am I imagining that? No, I think you're correct in in that. Um, It's absolutely insane. It is ridiculous. And, yeah, this has everything. It has, like, a, a bouncing woman. It has guns there are like pistols all over this thing it has pecos bill being an absolute creep to donald duck levels when he first sees sue she's the first woman he's ever seen and he starts like panting like a dog it's disgusting (laughs) it's just a shocker from start to finish so anyway pecos bill he's spending his days now howling up at the moon because that's where his wife lives now (laughs) and that's why coyotes howl at the moon if you've ever wondered kids that's it. It's official. It was such a weird story to end on. I liked this film a lot, but I didn't necessarily love Picos Bill in the way that I think that you did. I feel like this one could have been its own movie out of any of them. I mean, maybe Johnny Appleseed, but I feel like you could have stretched this out, had like each of these crazy feats that he undertakes could have been its own set piece in a movie. If this was its own film, I think people would just come out of it like, what? <laughs> what was that all about whereas at least as part of melody time it was like oh that was like a bit of a weird story in in among everything else i don't know if i could have handled this if it was its own movie it's got a great song as well i love the song i love any song that goes yippee yippee i like ghost riders in the sky by johnny cash i like space cowboy by nsync and i like picos bill by roy rogers that is a spotify playlist waiting to happen Okay, that's us done on Melody Time for now. Let's move on to the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which, as we said before, is something that I didn't know existed. This is Disney doing The Wind in the Willows and also doing The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, two films in one. Sam, it's the final package era film. Let's do this. So, this one begins. There is basically not really a framing narrative here. There is a framing setup, which is that they are both literary adaptations. There isn't really a story around them. These are just presented as these two films. But it begins in live action, zooming into a stained glass window, which notably has a book on it, and then onto a load of bookshelves. And there is a narrator basically asking the question, if you were asked to choose the most fabulous character in English literature, who would it be? Now, I wouldn't have picked Mr. Toad or Ichabod Crane. Sam, who would you have picked? Oh, wow, you've really put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a stupidly huge question, isn't it? Like, the... I think Mr. Toad might be top five, to be fair, man. <laughs> he, well, that's the thing, actually, thinking on it. The, the phrase was most fabulous, and being fabulous is like one of Mr. Toad's things. It's just, I'm, I'm desperately like glancing at a bookshelf trying to remember any other book that I've read, Mate, and it's just not happening. <laughs> we both have English degrees, but I don't think either of us really loved studying literature. I wrote about <laughs> Batman whenever I had the opportunity. Like, that's the level of culture that I was on. Yeah, I've read like two novels since I graduated like what six years ago and um, the last novel i read maybe two years ago was normal people so mm-hmm. let's go with them um, the fit guy from normal people <laughs> most fabulous character in literature most fabulous abs that's irish literature you don't want to cross those oh, streams <laughs> you're it, gonna have some it. angry people you sam you're cancelled anyway the answer in the confines of the adventures of ichabod and mr toad the first answer that comes up is j thaddeus toad esquire mr toad himself toad of toad hall in the wind in the willow and we have Basil Rathbone 
telling the story of Mr. Toad. But who the hell was Basil Rathbone? Who is this guy? He was a pretty famous actor who was particularly well known for playing snooty, upper-crust British guys in American films. His most famous role was Sherlock Holmes. For a long time, he was the Sherlock Holmes. He popularised the image of what that character was for a lot of people in the kind of 40s. And a sort of snooty upper-class Englishman is very much the Mr. Toad vibe. So I we're going to get to this in Discarded, but I honestly can't remember what Wind in the Willows is about. But the version that we get here is that Mr. Toad is living a fabulous life. He's rich as hell, he doesn't care about the consequences of his actions, and he just loves just doing whatever the hell he wants. He's not actively causing mischief, he's just not conscious of the consequences of his own actions. So that means... The, the slack is being taken up by Muck Badger, who is sorting out Toad's near-bankrupt estate because Mr. Toad has spent loads of his money or owes loads of money around town because he keeps damaging things when he's rushing about town on his horse and carts. Uh, in fact, as Muck Badger says, in a truly terrible Scottish accent, I offended my Scottish heritage. He goes, Summit's got to be done about Toad! <laughs> I'm even doing the voice actor some credit there. Mine wasn't great, but it was pure Scots magic compared to what the hell was going on in this film. But anyway, yes, McBadger realises something has to be done about Toad, but that's not going to happen because Mr. Toad suddenly realises that motor cars exist, gets obsessed with the idea of having a car, and it all goes downhill from there. So I was really conflicted about this, Sam, because on the one hand... I thought the design of Mr. Toad was incredibly cute. He just looks really funny. It's a great design. He looks Toad-like enough. And at the same time, he's just like a funny little weird animated creation. So I, I was struggling with the fact that he's really cute, but he's also just a massive Tory with all the privilege of the establishment writ large, showing off spending his money willy-nilly he really had me conflicted very few redeeming characteristics right i mean i have a huge thing for frogs and toads in old-timey outfits <laughs> is that a thing yeah so like obviously mr toad won the most famous jeremy fisher from the beatrix potter canon mm-hmm. is up there okay there's a couple in like alice in wonderland look I, I don't need to name specific examples take my word for it there is a particular tradition of art from around the turn of the century where um frogs and toads in old-timey clothes were absolutely rampant if you google it you will find it maybe it's all mr toad inspired but i'm pretty sure it actually predates him i think he's just one iteration of this um long-standing noble tradition and he Yet, I also have to acknowledge he's a bad bloke who does bad things and doesn't really have anything going for him. No, and he quickly gets his comeuppance, doesn't he? Because he gets motor mania when he sees a car. And in fact, you mentioned the Jungle Book earlier on in this episode. I got Jungle Book vibes here because when Mr. Toad sees the motor vehicle, his eyes go all swirly, exactly like car in the Jungle Book. Uh, and he, <laughs> I love that when Toad sees the car, he literally starts revving up. He just starts going and has to be carried home. And he's just sitting there in bed going. <laughs> so to the extent that he he's going to do whatever he can to get a car, which makes me feel a bit sorry for his horse because his favorite thing to do was to like ride his horse around 
around town in a very reckless manner. Poor Cyril is basically being traded in for a car instead. Oh, but Cyril is very much an accomplice in this. I feel like the fact that Cyril was pulling towards Cart earlier is just one small facet of their relationship because these guys are best buds. Cyril is behind him every step of the way in all of his various manias and misadventures. I think Cyril's egging him on, even. I think Cyril is, like, kind of really leading him astray. Cyril is the best character in this entire movie. (laughs) One of the best characters we've come across so far. Absolutely top tier in terms of forgotten Disney figures. He is just this really naughty Cockney horse. (laughs) He's so appealing to me. You, You said Cockney, but he sounds to me like Wallace from Wallace and Gromit. Oh, maybe. Bit of a trotter, bit of a rotter. That's how he (laughs) describes himself. Who wouldn't want to know that guy? You can tell why Toads wants to hang around with him all the time. And obviously Toads' main friends, kind of his canon group of friends from The Wind and the Willows, are Badger, Ratty and Mole. And those guys are here in this movie and they've got Toads' best interests at heart, or so they say. They're trying to get him to calm down, they're trying to get him to leave the cars alone, they're trying to get him to stop pissing his money away, etc, etc. He doesn't care about those guys, he wants to hang out with Cyril, and who can blame him? Yeah, all he cares about is Cyril and being able to drive a car. And the thing I didn't expect about this, because I basically can't remember the plot of Wind in the Willows, is that this very quickly becomes a courtroom drama. It's alleged that Toad has stolen a car and we don't see the crime but we we basically understand that no toad is toad is legit he he has done a deal but sadly he's done a deal with a bunch of criminal weasels toad whips up a deed to buy their car their shiny red car and in return they're gonna get toad hall but when toad causes loads of mischief with this car and is sent to court it's alleged that he actually stole the car and he's locked up in a real classic sort of castle-style jail cell. He's framed by an evil guy with a moustache who has corroborated with the weasels, saying that the car was stolen. Uh, And this is the point where Toad is pretty much supposed to be sort of reformed and repentant, that he's reflecting on his bad behaviour. At the same time, I don't think he really changes that much. He goes from being a toad who has loads of money and loves driving around in a crazy car and ends up as a toad who still has a reasonable amount of money and loves driving a crazy car. Yeah, and then towards the end of the film, his mania for cars is replaced by one for aeroplanes. So I think the impression is that this whole cycle is going to start again. He's going to hop into a cockpit with Cyril as his co-pilot and just start ploughing through the countryside, probably knocking down people's homes and things, just really stirring shit up. But before we get to that point, we have a thrilling escape and a massive climactic brawl. Yeah, I have to say, I loved, basically it ends up in a prison break. Cyril shows up for his boy, he turns up in the prison in disguise as Toad's grandmother, a terrible, terrible disguise, uh, with an identical little disguise for Mr. Toad. And yeah, he breaks him out of prison, and there is... I think, uh, I was about to say, the first proper Disney action sequence. I don't think that's actually true, because... I think we have had some really exciting fast-paced stuff, even in Pinocchio, the Monstro sequence, but for the first time in a long while, this is a really exciting sequence, like an action sequence in a Disney movie where the alarm is going off at the prison, all the houses are lighting up in the local neighbourhoods, there are police on horses chasing through the streets, and it's like an all-out chase. The police are shooting everywhere, and 
Toad is like hopping on a runaway train in order to escape them. It's really fast and fun. And it's followed up quite quickly by another scene wherein Toad gets the gang back together. He recruits the lads, Badger, Mac Badger, sorry, Ratty <laughs> and Maul, none of whom helped him broke out of prison. And in fact, I think Ratty in particular seems a bit like narc that he's even out of prison in the first place once again these aren't towards real friends cyril sprung him cyril was there for him in court he testified in his favor as well he's been there every step of the way ratty and mole are fair weather friends well i think ratty and mole think that mr toad genuinely has been up to no good i think they believe mm. that he was caught up in criminal stuff rather than having been framed whereas cyril probably knows Mr. Toad's boundaries. He knows that he wouldn't cross that criminal line. He just likes doing whatever the hell he wants and being able to throw money at the problem, which uh, still not a great way to live. Yeah, but I suppose nevertheless, Ratty and Maul and McBadger come together with Toad at the end to stage a daring raid on Toad's Hall and to try and seize back the deed. Now again, I don't know very much about the law but is it literally or was it ever literally just the case that whoever has this piece of paper with the deed to the house just owns the house like you have exchanged the deed for a motor car to these weasels and then you break back into the house beat up the weasels steal the deed and now it's yours again i think it's that the deed proves that Toad actually did a deal, that the car was legally owned by him. But also then, I think in proving that, it means that Winky, the evil moustache guy, who's teamed up with all of the weasels, that they all then get caught out, that they lied in court. And so somehow that means Toad can get Toad Hall back again? I don't know. It's all an excuse to basically have a really, really great sequence where, yeah, the whole gang descends on Toad Hall to take it back from the weasels, to nab the deed. And what a great sequence. Like There's there's a real sense of speed and fluidity and action and excitement that really comes across in the animation that I think we haven't felt for a long time in these Disney films. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. It feels like the style of Disney that we're going to see a lot more of in the coming weeks. Yeah, some really inventive beats as well, like Maul being lowered down from the sky like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible to try and grab the deed. Yeah, very Mission Impossible. And also um, the sort of spinning door wall thing from Last Crusade, that happens in this film as well. And then kind of the final trick that they pull to cash the weasels out is they fold the deed up into a paper airplane and then start throwing loads of other paper airplanes around so no one knows which one's the deed that was clever that was fun you get this great shot of toad with just tens of paper airplanes in his arms throwing them everywhere like a maniac which i loved that really got across the essence of his character in a fun way definitely and i i have to say i didn't massively gravitate towards this story but it was super entertaining and uh, it ends on a really fun note where yeah toad has got everything back his name has been cleared he has toad hall back <laughs> and he has continued his love for dangerous modes of transport by buying a biplane and as much as all of the other characters would never condone mr toad's bullshit I like that final line. I think it's maybe even from the narrator saying, don't we envy him a bit? That it's like we could all do with channeling our inner Mr. Toad at some point. One question for you, Ben, before we move on. I mentioned earlier on that this movie as a whole is built around a juxtaposition between a famous English character and a famous American character, with Toad being selected basically by Basil Rathbone, the narrator, within the context of the framing device, to represent England. This 
film, not necessarily the story, but this film that you've just watched, how English did it seem to you? Did it feel quintessentially English? Um, I don't really know. I think that Disney, if you could really feel that Disney style coming through, and I think that Disney style feels maybe quite inherently American. But I do think the presentation of nature and the natural landscapes did feel quite specifically like English or British. In a way that, you know, when Ghibli likes to set a lot of its stories in the UK or it it takes kind of British tales, it still looks like anime. It still looks like Japanese animation, but also you can see that it really is channeling the English countryside. I got a bit of the sense of that here. Well, yeah, similar to you, it stood out to me as being quite Americanized. Obviously, the characters do all speak with British accents, but especially McBadgers feel quite forced, feel quite put on. I think its sense of humour and its tone is very reminiscent of those older Disney cartoons, the Mickey Mouse series. You could have replaced the characters in the climactic sequence, I think, with Mickey, Donald and Goofy, and it would have played out very similarly. Whereas, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but the Wind in the Willows novel is a lot more meditative and melancholy And it has these comedic moments and these exaggerated moments, but I think that was what was being drawn out. That's what Disney picked up on and decided to accentuate. Disney are capable of making these more meditative films. Bambi speaks to that and some of the sequences in the packages as well. But um, yeah, what they chose to draw out of this story here, I think, felt a bit telling of their American perspective, maybe. This is like a full-on madcap kind of crime heist courtroom drama it's a weird mash of genres but i i totally know what you mean there is not that kind of quiet or even slightly stoic britishness or even a particularly british sense of humor i think um mm-hmm. it does feel like quite an american take on the story but as you said this is juxtaposed against an actual american story which is the legend of sleepy hollow the story of ichabod crane and yeah this is a very quintessentially american story i know it as The Tim Burton movie is basically my my way into Sleepy Hollow. And when it became apparent that that's what this story was going to be, I was like, wait, Disney is doing the Headless Horseman? Are there going to be heads rolling? Are there going to be people, like, murdered? Are we going to see decapitations? Not exactly, but it did eventually get there. It did eventually get to a Headless Horseman's tale. But I have to say, it took its sweet time getting there, Sam. Yeah, if you are mainly familiar with this story through the Tim Burton movie, this is a very noticeable change of pace. It's a lot more whimsical. To a point, it's a lot more Disney-esque as well. And it's a lot more centred around this fabulous character because i think when most people think of sleepy hollow they think of the headless horseman rather than the figure of ichabod crane himself who is central to the original story and is absolutely central to this disney adaptation as evidenced by the title yeah and i think it was interesting because my takeaway from this considering the whole point is that he is this fabulous character i didn't like ichabod crane sam i thought he was a bit of a prick to be honest uh he is basically this sort of city slicker a uh, sort of manhattan guy who comes to the very autumnal cozy little town village even of sleepy hollow to be their new schoolmaster And the thing I didn't expect about this story was that it was basically going to be a love triangle. So Ichabod Crane comes to Sleepy Hollow to be the schoolmaster, and he pretty quickly gets the hots for Katrina Van Tassel, who is the sort of 
eligible bacheloress in town. Ichabod Crane is very clearly established as a ladies' man who gets around like nobody can, um, who inveigles his way into the lives of all the women in the town, but he really wants Katrina Van Tassel. But there is a sort of roguish, mischievous hunk, a brutish guy called Brom Bones, who wants Katrina as well. She has no choice in the matter, Sam. This is a female character with no agency. She will have whatever man she is put with in the end. But uh, it becomes a love triangle between the three of them. And eventually the Headless Horseman stuff comes in because at a festival, another sort of hoedown situation, Ichabod basically swoops in and charms everybody and he charms Katrina he basically wins out over Brombones. And so Brombones gets his revenge by telling the spooky tale of the Headless Horseman, who, if you believe this kind of thing or not, rolls into town on Halloween, lops people's heads off to try and replace his own, and Ichabod is a famous scaredy cat. So when he's leaving the festival, he's heading out of town, and he gets super spooked out, and suddenly a Headless Horseman appears. Ooh. Yeah, very autumnal, pretty spooky. Personally, I was quite bored by the love triangle stuff. You have like 25 minutes of love triangle and 10 minutes of Headless Horseman. I kind of would have preferred it the other way around. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But I also think there's several interesting aspects to this love triangle because it's not a conventional love triangle in the sense that we aren't really rooting for anybody. I mean, Ichabod is our protagonist, but as you have said already, he is a bad dude. So he is he's manipulative. Yes, he's entering into the lives of these different women and specifically it's the mothers of the children he teaches at school. What a creep. Yeah, and he's doing it because he uh, he loves to eat. He likes to go to their houses, romance their mothers, and then eat the food that they make for him, and then bugger off. It's quite refreshing that like he's not just in it for the sex, I guess. He's in it for the food. <laughs> That's more relatable to me. Is that the Disney metaphor, though? Like, oh, he's in it for the food. He goes in and like sweet-talks the mums and has the food, and then never speaks to them again. <laughs> Possibly. And then with Katrina Van Tassel, it's made very, very clear that he is more interested in her father's money. Um, she's an heiress, and that's what he wants. Brom Bones, meanwhile, is absolutely a Proto-Gaston figure. Yes. We mentioned this with Casey at the bat as well, but um, Brom Bones is Gaston. He's this big, hunky dark-haired guy and he is after Katrina because he can't have her because he's used to having everything and he's hugely jealous of Ichabod's way with the ladies and he just kind of wants to beat Ichabod to this prize. We don't like either of these guys, yeah, right? There, there's, nobody really comes out of this very well and Katrina Van Tassel literally has no characterization whatsoever. She doesn't speak at all, I don't think. And it's interesting as well, we've spoken about the way that different characters are presented. She... Some of the characters here are very cartoony, including Ichabod himself. He kind of defies the laws of gravity. He's very extremely slim. He has like little skinny legs and he sort of contorts into shapes that people can't. But when you see Katrina Van Tassel, I don't know if she necessarily is rotoscoped, but she looks almost like a rotoscoped character. She's drawn as a proper human person uh, and yet is given absolutely no personality or voice whatsoever. So there isn't really a character to root for here. I think I found that a little bit difficult. I can definitely appreciate that perspective, but for me, it brings actually quite an unusual and novel dynamic to a love triangle because... 
Like, there is something about Ichabod Crane that makes him a character I like to watch, and there's something about him that is quite unique. I would almost go so far as to call him a fabulous character. (laughs) I just think he's a really... He's well-drawn in more ways than one. He's not a typical hero. He's not a typical romantic lead. He doesn't really fit into any kind of box, because the thing that we haven't really mentioned about him so far, which you kind of alluded to when you were talking about his appearance, is that he is a freak. He is a weird dude, and everyone acknowledges it. He's very strange looking. That's his core characteristic that everyone's always talking about. Even the women who love him kind of acknowledge that he's an odd looking guy. He has this song, his introductory number, sung by the narrator, includes the lyrics, Who's that coming down the street? Are they shovels or are they feet? (laughs) Just really laying into them straight away. Lean and lanky, skin and bone, with clothes a scarecrow would hate to own. He's just a really freaky looking guy, and yet the ladies love him. What I'm saying is, I find something aspirational about that. He's just a weird looking dude who's absolutely owning it. Yeah, he just, and he's very talented. He's a great dancer, he's a great musician. We assume he's excellent in bed. I think that's heavily <laughs> implied, right? But he's, you know, he is a role model in a way for skinny, wobbly freaks everywhere, which is a, a box that I would occasionally place myself into on my dark days, you know? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. This guy can, this guy can do it. This guy can do anything. I could be Ichabod Crane. But the thing is, you wouldn't want to be Ichabod Crane because he's an absolute skis of the highest yeah. order. Like he's using <laughs> he's, his powers for evil. I, I think for me, partly the way that he's drawn differently to everyone else was to accentuate as well that, yeah, he is a city guy and they are all country mm-hmm. folk. And it's that very American dichotomy between, yeah, the the progressive cities, self-made versus the sort of very rural life lived out in the towns and in the villages. Um, We should note, by the way, you said the narrator. The narrator for this is Bing Crosby. Huge deal. Bit of the Bing. One of the biggest stars in the world in any medium. This guy was killing it with his music he was killing it with his movies. He was at the top of both of these fields at this point in time. He was huge. The year after this came out, he was voted the most admired man in the world. Whoa. <laughs> Which isn't a very particular adjective, I think, that's being used there. But still, he's the most admired man in the world. And he is headlining a Disney movie. That is wild. It's something they've been building towards with these sort of increasingly famous singers in the package films. Bing is a step above. He's a step above Basil Rathbone, who's pitched as his British counterpart in this. Yeah, he is a star with his own personality, his own persona, and he is bringing that to these movies. He is imbuing the figures to whom he gives his voice, which in this case is Ichabod and Brom Bones, as well as the Unseen Narrator. He's imbuing them with aspects of his own persona. Maybe that's part of the reason why Ichabod is so sexy, because he is channeling Bing, who has a sexy voice. The women loved Bing. He was, like, not a sex symbol per se, but... The late 40s equivalent. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the late 40s equivalent, maybe, yeah. He is, Sam, a fabulous character. (laughs) He is a fabulous character in of himself. 
even in the opening credits for this movie, before we've met Mr. Toad or Ichabod, when we're still in the middle of the Ichabod and Mr. Toad song, when Bing's name comes on screen in the credits, everything stops and we just get a little acapella bom ba bom 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 <laughs> which, as you'll know from that incredible impression, is something he was known for, was these little, almost scat-style bomba-da-bombs in his songs. It's... He dropped the bomba-da-bomb. <laughs> yeah, straight up, here's Bing, the poster, Bing in huge letters, and the tagline, here Bing sing. If you go to see this movie, you're getting Bing. Okay, that's what you're getting. So if Bing is a fabulous character, we have one more character who I thought was the most fabulous in the film that we need to talk about, and that is the Headless Horseman himself. Because after Brom decides to freak Ichabod out with his scary Halloween story, uh, through a song that ends with Ichabod eating a spicy egg, I thought that was just like a weird, weird ending to that song. Um, Yeah, Ichabod is heading home, and yet again, Disney's favourite thing pops up, which is a spooky forest full of things that may or may not be supernatural and then it's just the mind's eye playing tricks. Or so Ichabod thinks, because after being freaked out by crickets and toads and owls who all appear to be chanting, Ichabod, Ichabod, he suddenly hears an actual crazy cackling and it is the Headless Horseman. And at this point, everything goes properly horror-y, and I flippin' loved it. The whole screen goes purple and red when the horseman appears. It's an amazing visual when you first see him. He's swinging a sword, his horse has bright red eyes, you see his cape flying in the crazy breeze. It's such a cool image. Sam, this must have appealed massively to the Chernobog stand inside you. Oh man, this is incredible. This is why I watched this. Well, I have watched this for the last few Halloweens in a row. I love the Halloween party sequence where Bromborn sings the song i think it's a cool spooky song but then this is really pure horror and it does stand in stark contrast to the earlier kind of pseudo romantic comedy part of the segment which you drew attention to earlier but the payoff is so good here we have the disney studio making a horror movie it's nothing else it's just a horror movie at least for these 10 minutes there are scary scenes in every disney movie so far pretty much Snow White and Pinocchio and Fantasia especially, some horrific stuff in there. But this is horror. The way that the atmosphere builds as he wanders the forest. The way that this soundscape is layered with frogs and crickets and crows all chanting things at Ichabod. You know, it would seem similar techniques in Snow White as you pointed out, but that was complete fantasy. And here we have this payoff. The nightmare is real, the horseman is there, and then you were talking about Disney action scenes before, this is such a thrilling sequence as he's being chased. I don't think anything in Disney has been so thrilling. Maybe Monstro, but this really gets the blood pumping. And you don't know if he's going to live or die either, because we know that this is kind of a standalone little segment here. Unless you know the story, you don't know how this is going to go for Ichabod. No, and they introduce this really great idea that basically Ichabod has to get to the other side of the bridge. Once he gets to the other side of the bridge, he's fine. But his horse gets spooked and gets turned around, and so then he's actually galloping away from the bridge so as far as we're aware Ichabod does make it across the bridge but the horseman chucks a flaming pumpkin at him and it flies right at the camera in this amazing visual this bright orange pumpkin flame shooting out of it the headless horseman in the background having just absolutely yeeted it and it is such a cool image I loved that what a way to end and of course 
we now have to reckon with the fact that potentially this is our first Disney movie where the main character dies. Yeah, so we know through the narration that eventually actually Brom marries Katrina and that the schoolmaster Ichabod was spirited away. There is a chance he may have survived and gone into hiding, but we actually don't know. They leave that up in the air and it's a really pleasingly eerie way to end the story. Yeah, even Bing's freaked out. The last line in this whole movie is Bing going, man, and I'm getting out of here. That was Elvis. <laughs> yeah, but, that was very You Elvis. know, you can imagine, man, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> I'm not going to redo it. You can live with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really like that little touch at the end, that little last Bing line. And, um, I mean, it really does just sort of spit you out the other end because, yeah, you get this revelation that, hey, maybe, maybe Ichabod died or just nobody ever heard from him again. Uh, and at that point, the camera in the live action setting retreats out of the bookshelves, back out the stained glass window, and there you go. It's the end. Are you happy now, kids? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in a way it's appropriate that he was built up as such a skis. If he's going to be the first Disney character to die, it might as well be one that we're quite happy to see go. If he did die at the end, I'm not too heartbroken about that. It's not like he was Little Toot, you know? <laughs> God bless you, Little Toot. That brings us then to Discarded, the section of the show where we look at what Disney changed and left out of its adaptations. And there are quite a few familiar stories here, so Sam, let's start with a couple from Melody Time. I imagine Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill, that there is other literature out there, other versions of these stories, more traditional tellings. So what was lost in translation for those two? Yeah, well, these are interesting cases because these are kind of tall tales, legends, and relatively recent ones at that compared to something like Snow White, there isn't really like an urtext to draw on. There's not like an official definitive written account of, of like the Picos Bill myth uh, in the way that Snow White has the grim version and stuff like that. Which means that there's quite a few variations when it comes to Picos Bill in terms of what the legends say. There's a few different versions of this ending, for example. There's a version where Bill manages to get his lasso around Sue as she's being bounced to the moon. And he ends up on the moon with her, which is quite happy. I'd rather be on Earth, but um, at least you're with your girlfriend. So it is canonical that she bounced up to the moon on her butt. That is an inherent part of the story? Oh, absolutely. That's always there. There is no version of this in which someone doesn't end up on the moon <laughs> from a butt bounce. That's there. That's canon. Actually, to be fair, there is a version where um, he manages to save her. I guess this maybe is the more child-friendly version. He manages to save her. The butt bounce is still there, but he gets her at the peak, pulls her down. They live happily ever after. Widowmaker apologises and is forgiven, which I think is quite lame. I don't think that's in character for Widowmaker, who, in my mind, is a merciless killer. Absolutely remorseless. There's a version where he shoots her in midair to put her out of her misery. What?! He shoots Slewfoot Sue? That is brutal. Yep. Oh my god. Oh. So the Disney version is kind of pitched in between those two extremes there. I think they took the right way to go. The thing is, if she doesn't get to the moon in the kid-friendly version, then why are the coyotes howling at the moon, Sam? <laughs> I think that aspect of it, the etiological like, explanation, is something that Disney added 
I don't think that's an inherent part of the of the myth of the legend that this is a story about why Coyote's Howl at the Moon. That was something that the studio thought would lend it some resonance, I guess. It gives it a bit more of a reason for a story to be told, you know? Like, hey kids, yeah. do you want to know why that coyote's howling at the moon? Well, let me tell you this really, really weird story. So in contrast to Picos Bill, Johnny Appleseed is actually a real guy who existed. This is fairly faithful to the, like, the broad strokes of his life obviously the angel stuff is um well who's to say ben open to interpretation may or may not have taken place but he is also said to have had in real life a pet wolf which is pretty metal pretty hardcore would have liked to see that mm-hmm. but that's pretty much it for the stories of melody time most of those were original concoctions what about then, uh, let's go into the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Uh, let's take it in the order that the film spells them out rather than the title. Let's go Mr. Toad first. The Wind in the Willows. Right, we grew up at a time when there was that live-action Wind in the Willows film with loads of the Monty Python people in, which I I definitely saw. I, like, I, I still retain images and stuff of that film, mainly... Whoever was playing Mr. Toad, like rattling around in that crazy car, but I, for the life of me, can't remember the actual Wind in the Willows story. So, was this a fairly faithful telling? Um, well, first of all, that was Terry Jones was playing Mr. Toad, right? But yeah, yes, this is a faithful adaptation of sections of the Wind in the Willows because the Wind in the Willows is a much broader novel than just the story of Mr. Toad. Mr. Toad is the most famous character because, of course, he is the most fabulous. But we actually start The Wind in the Willows with Maul. He is our protagonist in the novel. He's our way into this story. And he has several adventures where he meets Ratty and Badger before they even get involved with Mr. Toad. It's more of a, a panoramic view of this sort of woodland community where you've got a few different characters doing their own thing, but the through line that keeps reoccurring is the adventures of Toads and his imprisonment and escape, and etc., his madness with motor cars. He has a horse, but the horse does not talk. Boo. Yeah, boo. So Cyril, as an addition, I am all for. I think that's... That's pure Disney. Yeah, total Disney invention, but I think the story is the better for it, and I, in fact, think we should go back and edit the original novel and insert Cyril into it. Just every time the horse is mentioned, he can do a little wisecrack. That's good enough for me. The true most fabulous character in all of English literature. In the original, Toad does steal the motor car. Ooh. Okay, so that's a little twist, because Disney makes him a more morally acceptable character by proving that he actually did a legit deal. Yes, he was much more shady and much more, I think, manic and immoral like he is totally ruled by his obsession in the novel there is nothing he will not do badger isn't scottish mac badger is a total (laughs) flight of fancy why did they make him scottish when the guy can't do a scottish accent it makes it worse right it makes it so much worse there's no need for that Maybe, like, I don't know, because he's rough and aggressive and the thought, oh, it'd be good to make him, like, a Scottish stereotype for that reason. Just give it a little bit more flavour, I don't know. Maybe someone just thought it would be really, really funny. (laughs) And by that point, it was too late. He was Muck Badger. They'd drawn him in a slightly Scottish outfit. They'd given him some tartan. Couldn't roll it back. But, yeah, there's several non-toad-centric chapters that have been completely missed out and you have to imagine that when this was originally pitched as a feature film that would have gone into some of those stories as well the one that i really want to talk about because a lot of these are more kind of a bit more dour a bit more melancholic a bit more surreal at times as well 
the one that I wanted to highlight is called Piper at the Gates of Dawn, okay? And I just want to run you through what occurs in the chapter <laughs> Piper at the Gates of Dawn from Wind in the Willows. Toad, not involved. It's about Ratty and Mole, who are trying to find a missing baby otter whose name is Portly. He's what, a chubby little otter. Little chubby otter, yeah. That's cute. So he's got lost in the woods. Mole and Ratty go off to try and find him. And they get totally lost in the forest. Can't figure out where they're coming from, where they're going to. And they have an encounter with the uh, Greek forest god Pan. What? Yeah, the god Pan from Greek mythology. Goat guy, he's goat boy. Nearly gets sucked into Pan's labyrinth territory. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, right. <laughs> sets him three tasks to reach the underworld. I totally forgot about that other big pop culture Pan. Ratty and Mole meet the pale man. <laughs> he rips their heads <laughs> off <laughs> and chomps them down. Pan is the piper at the gates of dawn, and I think the implication is that he is their god, because in mythology he's the god of the forest, mm. he is the deity worshipped by Ratty and Morley and all that lot. That's what I got from it anyway. And basically, Pan gives them a little bit of help. He points them in the right direction, helps them find Portly. And then he judges that this otherworldly encounter that they've had is going to be so traumatic for them that he wipes their memories and sends them back. It's really kind of bleak. And he, it, so it ends with the line, um, he gave them the gift of forgetfulness, lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow and overshadow mirth and pleasure, and the great haunting memory should spoil all the afterlives of these characters. Jesus. Well, if they'd have done that as well as Sleepy Hollow, it would have been a full-on Halloween double bill. Yeah, so some quite significant portions have been missed out. I think genuinely, like, that is mad, but I think Disney would have done a great job with it if it had gone all out. I think they were able to capture that kind of tone quite well in movies like Bambi, and I would like to have seen what they would have done with it. And so what about The Legend of Sleepy Hollow then? What about, is that Washington Irving, the guy who wrote that? Yeah, and that is almost spot on, Wow. to be honest. It's a short story, and I think that perhaps because of the Tim Burton film, people imagine it to be this grisly like slasher story, this slasher narrative. So, like, that was what you were familiar with, and you said that the story told here actually came as quite a shock to you and how different it was. Yeah, I, I just didn't expect it to be mostly a love triangle, and I have to say, I did find that disappointing. But that was actually Tim Burton going in the other way. Mm -hmm. He built on the Irving narrative to make it more horrific, to make it more action-packed and violent. The actual story is pretty much this as it plays out. One aspect I do like is that there's no suggestion in the novel that the pumpkin that the horseman uses for a head is carved. So it's just a big pumpkin, just a regular <laughs> pumpkin, which I find very entertaining, the idea of this guy with just a straight-up pumpkin for a head. Nice. And I think there's a touch of this in the film, but at the end of the story, it's much more overtly implied that... Brom Bones was the Headless Horseman in a sort of Scooby-Doo style and that he was dressing up to scare Ichabod away and that either he has murdered Ichabod or Ichabod fled and Brom Bones went back to his life and took the lady. Can you imagine if he did chop off Ichabod's head? He would be a full-on murderer. That would make him even more gaston -y. Yeah, that's true. It'd make him almost as bad as Little Toot. <laughs> yeah, the body count just piling up in these movies. But otherwise, that's a pretty faithful adaptation then. Wow. More so than the Tim Burton film. That definitely warped my expectations. So what did critics have to say about Melody Time when it first came out and also Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad? What, how were they received? 
So, following in the tradition of the critical response to Make My Music, there were a trove of publications who every time one of these movies comes out just says, oh man, this is the best Disney ever. This is the <laughs> best yet. So we've got the new Sentinel saying that um, Medley Time is Disney better than ever. We've got Box Office Magazine or whatever saying that Ichabod and Mr. Toad is Walt Disney's animated wizardry at its best. We've got Variety saying amongst the best full-length cartoons turned out by the Disney studio. That's Ichabod and Mr. Toad again. So there are a cadre of critics who will just eat this shit up and just be like, yep, this is it, this is the best one, surpassed his peak yet again. But we'll have a few more people telling it like it is when it comes to these movies. Some critics are getting increasingly disillusioned with the Disney machine. Yeah, I mean, we're six, well, five and six films into the the package era now. I I imagine it must have been probably after those initial five features, a bit of a realignment for people. At this point, there are more package films than there are non-package films in the the Disney catalogue. Yes, and people are getting a little bit sick of it. So, of Melody Time, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, excellent name, by the way, (laughs) writes... It's a gaudy grab bag show in which a couple of items are delightful and the rest are just adequate fillers in. Like healthy imaginative children, those Disney boys are full of strange caprice. One minute they are doing something charming, the next minute they are slopping in the jam. Ooh, God, that's harsh. Slopping in the jam, what a horrible phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Just slopping that jam in there, man. I don't know precisely which of these he took against so powerfully but um yeah just jam half of this is just jam slopped in the observer the british newspaper had words for disney on the subject of mr toad on the subject of the wind in the willows because yeah of, of course they could probably yeah release this stuff in the uk now as well couldn't they now that the war was over absolutely all disney has added they write is a slight touch of vulgarity all he has omitted is the book's essential freshness Where is the sense of running water and the whisper of wind in the willows? Like Mr. Toad, Disney has gone lusting after strange contraptions and neglected the homely things he used to know. I mean, they're not wrong, but I think that's just part of the fun of the way they chose to adapt that story. Yeah, it's not trying to surpass Wind in the Willows, and I think unlike a lot of Disney's adaptations, it has not surpassed Wind in the Willows. As you alluded to before, this isn't a very well-known adaptation in the grand scheme of things. There are more recent, perhaps more well-known films a lot of people probably don't even realise it was ever a Disney movie. So I think, you know, for what it is, this was fine. I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at these deviations, really. I will say that Ichabod and Mr. Toad won a Golden Globe for Best Cinematography. Wow, that's an interesting one. Cinematography, especially in the animation sense, it's an interesting yeah, win. isn't that strange? And this was at a time when the distinguish between black and white and colour cinematography... So, in fact, I've seen in some places this has been referred to as an award for best use of colour, which makes a lot more sense. But yeah, in other places, it's been described as best cinematography. The colour stuff in Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad is amazing, especially the Sleepy Hollow stuff. The evocation of autumnal rural America and, and like we said, the colours once the Headless Horseman comes in, amazing. Yeah, the colour's spectacular. Again, that's a Mary Blair job, the colour palettes on Sleepy Hollow. Not Wind in the Willows, I don't think, but Sleepy Hollow is Mary Blair. So were these two box office hits? I think it's significant that... After this, Disney sacks off the package features. They're back into full-on feature films, so presumably the money side of this is checking out quite nicely. Well, 
I mean, yes and no, because these things are cheap, they are making back their budget, but we are seeing a decline in profits with every package film, actually, right. more or less. The curve is downwards. Almost all of them make less money than their predecessor. So Melody Time is down from Fun and Fancy Free with about two and a half million, and then Toad is down from that with uh, 1.6 million so we are seeing them take a hit right it just seems then maybe yeah people are getting fed up with the package stuff maybe that's a reason as well to move away from that in future that just it's not that much of a draw anymore people have seen many times over how disney does this yeah it's keeping them afloat but it's clear especially to walt and roy his brother who was running the company's finances that this was not going to remain viable for much longer which is why we see them start to push towards full-length films again. We'll discuss that more when we get to it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, not great. But Ben, what did you think? I enjoyed both of these. I thought Melody Time was basically Make My Music, but a lot better. I thought just, I really loved some of the segments in it. I loved the Mary Blairness of it all. And I only wish it hadn't have ended with Pecos Bill because I didn't, it just wasn't my kind of thing. And without that segment there, this would easily have been a four star for me. And I think now with that, it gets like a three and a half. And you know, I would probably go about three and a half for Ichabod and Mr. Toad as well, because I didn't massively love either of those segments, but I thought they were really entertaining and very impressive and had much more flair than quite a few of the things that we've seen recently in this package era. You could see in that film, to my eyes, this era coming to an end, them kind of reaching for bigger things again. You feel it in both of those shorts. I maybe would return to the Sleepy Hollow stuff around Halloween. I think I would probably just watch the last 15 minutes, though, (laughs) from when the spookiness kicks in, rather than all the love triangle stuff. But um, yeah, I would say if you've not seen these films, they are worth checking out, especially among the package feature stuff. I think Make My Music was the bottom end, really. And Mm -hmm. these are kind of middle to upper end of the package era stuff. Yeah, I think every segment here, to me... and Okay, you didn't like Picos Bill that much. To me, every segment here feels fully realised. It feels fleshed out. It feels like they took these ideas and they did everything that they could with them in a way that stuff from Make My Music felt half-finished in the way that even stuff from The Three Caballeros, which I love, doesn't feel like it hangs together and it feels like they are, in a lot of cases, just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Here, every segment feels like it went through a clear, rational process of development. They knew what they were doing with them from the start and they achieved what they set out to. Nothing feels half-arsed, basically. It's very, very full-arsed, these two (laughs) movies, compared to the everything we've seen so far in the package era. Full arsed bouncing right to the moon. Star ratings, I don't know, because in a way, I want to give, especially Ichabod and Mr. Toad, I want to give that four stars. I like both of those segments a lot. I think the back end of Sleepy Hollow is an absolute two to force. But now I'm thinking, well, what have I given four stars to already? I'm pretty sure I gave Bambi and Snow White four stars. Mm-hmm. I, I, you wouldn't really say that this stood alongside those movies, no matter how much I like it. No, you have to judge them all on their own merit, Sam. This is what we do when we talk about in work, when we're like, oh, this was a four, but does that mean this is a four? Mm. that way madness lies you just have to take them on their own merits if you think these are a four if you think they're really good they're better than just like okay they're decent then go with your heart go with the four well thank you ben for that wisdom that you've gained in the professional world (laughs) i feel like i've been educated there i feel like i'm at beniversity 
being taught all about film journalism. <laughs> Three and a half stars for Melody Time, four stars for Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Forget it. I like it. Both of these worlds are places I like to spend time. Yeah, you can't beat that Sleepy Hollow sequence for animated horror. So now it's time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So Sam, what's the Lasting Legacy first up? of Melody Time. So the only character, the only segment from Melody Time that really has any kind of afterlife is Picos Bill. Not your favourite. I think particularly in the case of Disneyland, which opens in 1955, so not that long after this, the construction of Disneyland would begin very shortly after this film was released, there is Frontierland. There is this whole area of the park devoted to westerns, and yet Disney doesn't have that many western-themed characters under their belt at this stage. Certainly things like, you know, the full-length animated features are all more at home in Fantasyland or Adventureland, if you want to categorise them into the different areas of the park. So they drew quite heavily on Picos Bill for the iconography of the original Frontierland. There was a saloon in the original California park called the Golden Horseshoe Saloon. And in that saloon, there was a stage show starring Picos Bill, played by an actor called Wally Borg, with Sue, played by an actress called Betty Taylor. And this was basically a stage show where they would do a bit of a song and dance and sing some of the songs from the Picos Bill segment and do a few tricks. And this became the longest-running theatre performance in the history of entertainment. What? The longest running theatre performance in the history of entertainment. Did it end with like a trampolining butt segment? (laughs) I guess I could see why that would run and run and run. (laughs) Well, see, to me, that seems like something you get one shot at and you better get it right. (laughs) Um, So these two performers played these roles around 45,000 times. Jesus. After initially signing two-week contracts, they did it. (laughs) From 1955 to around 1986, I think um, Betty Taylor was there for a little bit longer than Wally Borg. And then they both passed away within a day of each other in 2011. No way. Oh. Yeah. So heavy Picos Bill presence at um, Disneyland. Steve Martin has said that he's very influenced by that performance. And I think you can kind of see that when he's doing his like banjo plucking thing. Um, he's got a similar comic energy to Wally Borg on stage. There's bits of that on YouTube. I'll probably tweet it out of um, that performance. There is a Picos Bill Tall Tale Inn and Cafe at Frontierland in Florida. It's a Picos Bill themed cafe, but there's also lots of iconography from other Tall Tale characters like um, Paul Bunyan and John Henry, both of whom appear alongside Picos Bill in a live action adaptation a disney one yep in a disney film so you thought the live action remake thing was a recent phenomenon we've already had perry bringing bambi briefly to live Mm -hmm. action many years ago but in 1995 there was a live action picos bill film called tall tale in which he leads a group of sort of american mythological avengers including paul bunyan and john henry and of course Widowmaker. And they team up to save a small town from some evil, like, I don't know, like an oil baron or something. I don't care. <laughs> and um, Oh, did I say it was Patrick Swayze? It was Patrick Swayze. What? 
That's Let's pick crazy. Us mean business when you get Patrick Swayze in. Yeah, he teams up with a little boy to save this town. He tells the boy the story of the time Widowmaker bounced somebody to the moon, but it's not Slewfoot Sue in this version. It's a man called Lanky Hank. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I'm not sure if he was meant to be wearing a, a big metal butt like Sue was, or if he was just a bouncy guy naturally or what. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, Picos Bill leaves the boy Widowmaker. Picos Bill rides away on a hurricane into the distance and leaves Widowmaker with the boy, which seems very ill-advised considering how much of a loose cannon this horse is. Yeah. Hey, child, enjoy this horse with a body count. <laughs> Shall we talk about Ichabod and Mr. Toad? Because yeah. that's pretty much it for Melody time. Yeah. What's the lasting legacy of Ichabod and Mr. Toad? Okay, I'm going to do them in reverse order because there's less stuff for Ichabod. Uh, the Headless Horseman pops up quite a bit in like various gatherings of Disney villains. So if there was ever like an episode of a TV show like House of Mouse or something where they have all the Disney villains together, the Headless Horseman sometimes pops up. He also leads the Halloween parade at some of the parks. So there's a Halloween parade and the first person you see if you watch it is the Headless Horseman trotting out, which I think is quite cool, quite neat. Does he throw a flaming pumpkin at small children? Definitely he should. In Hong Kong, there was a Halloween maze that popped up every season for a while called The Revenge of the Headless Horseman, where you walk around a maze and try to avoid getting decapitated. That's pretty much your lot for Ichabod and Mr. Toad. I think they are a little bit hamstrung by how horrific you can make things at Walt Disney World or in any of these subsequent Disney works. Obviously, we've got the Tim Burton film, but that wasn't a, a Disney joint or anything. So, Mr. Toad, though, interesting afterlife. Where shall I start? So, the Terry Jones film that you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. that was not a Disney movie. It was a live-action adaptation of Wind in the Willows, where the characters are all just, like, people. It's just people in costumes, right? But with a bit of, like, yeah. early CGI enhancements in a way that's, like, really terrifying. Costumes that vaguely suggest what kind of animal they're supposed to be. It's got Terry Jones and Mr. Toad, who also directed it, Steve Coogan is Mole, Eric Idle is Rat. This movie could not find a distributor in the US. It was an independent British film. It was eventually picked up in America by Disney, so it was not conceived as an adaptation of their version of Wind in the Willows, but it was renamed Mr. Toad's Wild Ride for American distribution, which is the name of the iconic and long-running Mr. Toad ride at Disneyland. So they're trying to pitch this as a live-action remake. Right, and uh, yeah, so as soon as he said Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, I was like, yes, that's a thing. So that's always been a staple in the parks, has it? Yeah, it is. It was an opening day attraction. It's one of the only attractions still left standing in California from the opening day. It's been redone a couple of times, obviously, but... Mr. Toad's Wild Ride situates you in the car with Toad going off on one of his joy rides, okay? Which is interesting because the iconic image, if you picture Mr. Toad in your head as a character, he's in the car, right? Mm. You don't see him drive the car in the movie. No, because it leaves it up to you to work out whether he was stealing the car or not. You never see him actually drive the car. Yeah, you're yeah. right. It's a bit like how Pinocchio's nose and Dumbo's flight are only very brief sequences in those movies. Mm. Here, we, we picture Mr. Toad in this car, but we don't actually get that in the movie. But Disney did adapt that story in the attraction, in which you start off in Toad Hall in Mr. Toad's car, you burst out 
through the streets of London, causing havoc, like nearly running into people. Um, you eventually drive through the doors of the courtroom, and you're in the courtroom sequence from the movie, but you're still in his car. And the judge points right at you, the rider, who I guess you're playing the part of Mr. Toad here, says you are guilty, and then you leave the courtroom and enter hell. Hell? He never goes to hell. What the f- <laughs> No, apart from presumably after he dies. In this ride, you go out of the courtroom, onto a railway track, you are hit by an oncoming train, you die and you go to hell, where you are accosted by demons and dragons and goblins and walls of flame, and then you come right back out into the Loden Zone, out you get Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. That is a wild ride, blimey. Can you even conceive of a wilder ride? I, I can't. <laughs> Honestly can't. So frightening. Nothing to do with that story. One last thing. In Paris, there's a Toad Hall restaurant and it serves fish and chips, beef stew pie, hot chicken and bacon sandwich. For a second, I thought you were going to say they serve frog legs and I was like, that's so wrong. (laughs) It's meant to be where you go to get British food in Disneyland Paris. So I will tweet out a picture of this menu. It's incredibly bleak. It includes photos of all these dishes. They're all served with a Coca-Cola and a mini Magnum. And it includes the tagline, so very British. I end all of my meals with a Magnum, you know? It's just the British way. A beef stew pie, a Magnum and a Coke. So very British. Anyway, that's Mr. Toad in the parks. That's his Disney lasting legacy. He's done quite well out of a very short movie that nobody's seen. He has. And Sam, when we go to Disneyland together next time, we're going to go and eat at Mr. Toad's restaurant and finish off our meal with a glass of Coke and a lovely Magnum. I'm going to go and have one right now. And that is it for this week's class and for the package era of Disney. It's been a fascinating journey through a little known period of the Disney catalogue for me. It's been amazing to delve into these sort of lesser known experimental, quite off the wall collections. But that said, I can't wait to get into the next lot of films because the big guns are coming out now. So yeah, if you've been listening along to these episodes, like thanks so much for joining us through this package era. It's been a really fascinating uh, journey. We hope you've enjoyed exploring these films as much as we have. But before we crack on with the next lot of movies, we're going to be putting out another study group bonus episode, breaking down the package era, talking about our favourite stories, how we think they stack up against the first five Disney features, updating our rankings, and we might sprinkle in a little bit of Riot and the Last Dragon chat too. After that, the next movie you need to watch is none other than Cinderella. Glass slipper or not, we'll see you at the ball. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Every rating and review is really appreciated. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll thank you by terrorising your enemies with spooky ghost stories that'll ensure they never trouble you ever again. And we won't tell you where we hid the bodies. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Man, I'm getting out of here. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening, and finish all your meals with a magnum. Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disney.